from socialservice.sg, I'm Jing Yao. This is COVID-19 Community Chronicles in Singapore, a podcast documenting community initiatives and discussing related structural or systemic challenges. This is a special series of episodes created in collaboration with Our Class Notes, a website of both reporting and research on the electoral, parliamentary, and political scene in Singapore. These reporters and writers are first-time voters who believe that, and I quote, everyone should have enough news and views about Singapore to cast an informed vote, end quote. Today, we speak to veteran journalist Bertha Hansen. She's currently an Associate Professor of Practice at the Department of Communications and New Media in the National University of Singapore, and she's formerly with the Singapore Press Holdings Stable of Newspapers. I also know her as Madam because I had the opportunity to work with, learn from, and report for her at the now-defunct site Breakfast Network and The Middle Ground. She's covered seven general elections, four by-elections, and two contested presidential elections. And hence, I asked her about her experience of reporting an election, the issues to which she's paying attention during the upcoming general election in Singapore, as well as how the ruling party would approach the election. Here is our full conversation recorded today. So you joined the Straits Times in 1986, and since then you've covered, you must have covered seven general elections and four by-elections. So I guess as a reporter, the first question I have would be, which election was the most memorable for you? I think, Kwan, you forgot presidential elections as well. Oh, yeah. But <laughs> mine, never mind. Uh, where general elections is concerned, I think my first one in 1988 was, is probably the most memorable for me. I, it wasn't just because I was so green, but um, it was, to me, the most exciting. Uh, I have to thank the uh, you know, lawyer Francis Xiao, who he really added colour to the elections then. And I believe he's single-handedly responsible for the massive turnouts at Workers' Party rallies. I mean, this was the start you know, of the rallies being such a big deal in the Singapore climate. I think 1988 was also a politically charged year. That's the other thing. Uh, there was a Marxist conspiracy, American interference in politics, and I think people seem to forget it was the first time the group representation constituency format was put in place. So the atmosphere was very tense. You know, it was a very, very highly charged ele- uh, ele- uh, election. So I covered the UNOS GRC, and that was where the Workers' Party contested uh, with Mr. Xiao. And I don't know if young people remember, there was also Dr. Lee Siu Cho, was from uh, used to be Barisan National, uh, Barisan Socialist. Sorry, you know I saw how the PAP switched candidates around at the last minute. You know, soon jumping out of his car at the nomination center. Then we said, "Oh my God, something's changing here." You know, so it was Teng Soon. You know, he's a very respected man. You know, well spoken, impeccable. You know, so it looked like the PAP is relying on him. You know, to basically oppose Mr. Xiao. And you should see how desperately hard Dr. Tay and his family you know, campaign, you know. I mean, coming from River Valley, you know, which was, I think at that time, very middle class, it was really quite a change for him. Uh, you know, uh, and basically, every time he came back 
from a walkabout. And I was at the branch, you could see him totally drenched in perspiration and how his wife would very nicely, you know, dab him with tissue paper. <laughs> anyway, um, polling day, I went to the center early. It was a school uh, uh, somewhere in Tampanese. And, you know, I was so shocked. There was a lot of people before me. You know, I really thought I was late. And they were all in the canteen having dinner, you know. And I wondered who they were and realized later, oh my God, they were plain clothes policemen. And they all dispersed suddenly, you know, I suppose to, you know, put themselves within the crowd. And frankly, I, they could be mistaken for gangsters or ruffians. Uh, so the PAP and the opposition supporters, of course, they turned up and uh, they swarmed the field. And there was a single blue line of uniformed policemen who looked like NS men. I tell you, it looked extremely dangerous to me. You know, it's like if I just push over one guy and, you know, the, the line will be breached, you know. Uh, the opposition cheering you know, overpowered the PAP. You can tell, you know, everybody who rooted for the opposition was there. Whereas I suppose the PAP side, you know, they had to be dispersed among all the constituencies. Uh, and also JBJ, who could not contest the election that year, he was there too. So, well, uh, waiting for the results, I tell you, it's like waiting for durians to fall. I mean, we sat there, we waited, every centre had announced there, and then we just waited and waited and waited, and there was a lot of talk about how there was a recount, you know. Mm -hmm. So finally, when past midnight, the, the results were announced. The opposition couldn't believe it, you know. It was such a close shave, 50 point something percent. Mm -hmm. And that's a big deal because this is a GRC. Yeah. You know, this isn't a single seat ward, you know. So, um, but they lost. Uh. And what made it worse was that the Workers' Party team didn't come out to the balcony to address supporters. Mm -hmm. So you keep wondering, hey, how come, you know, why weren't they there? The opposition supporters were, of course, getting quite riled up. Mm -hmm. The winning PAP side, they got up there. But I don't think they managed to finish any speech because they got shouted down. And, um, and when, you know, time came for dispersal, the police opened a small, tiny gate in the school compound and they asked the PAP side, which was closest to the gate, to file out first. So it was a single file out of the gate. And it was crazy, you know, I mean, they were told to, you know, pull down their flags. So they were marching like losers, no? Yeah. And, um, but the problem is the opposition just wouldn't disperse so easily, lah. Yeah, but what so I guess amidst this craziness and this ruckus, what happened um, thereafter? Well, frankly, I, I'm not so sure, you know, because as a reporter, you have to go and file a story. Mm -hmm. And this was way before smartphone days. Uh, so you actually carry a lot of 10 cent coins with you and you have to find <laughs> a pay phone. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you, I early already, you know, they've scouted the pay phone that's nearer. So I ran over to a HDB block to use the phone. Uh, but then I was interrupted because there was this siren which sounded, I mean, it's certainly ear-splitting ear sound. So I hung out on my boss and, and said, wait, wait, I have to go and see what's happening. And that was when I saw the riot police in action. Now, I've never seen riot police in action. I don't think many people have, you know, not in Singapore anyway. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you, you see all these dark-suited men rushing out of the, the, what they call the Black Marias, I think, in those days, the big vans. And then they started banging the batons on the shields, running into the crowd, because the crowd were, were all at some kind of uh, uh, field uh, uh, near the center. Then, so they charged up. Then suddenly I saw some men being pulled out from the crowd. You know? mm -hmm. uh, so, so I suppose they were the ring leaders. You know? So I asked 
a policeman, you know, you just have to go and look and see who has a lot more badges on his, on his uniform. And say, oh, this guy looks important. So, you know, and I asked him, are you arresting anyone? And he said, yeah, yeah, a couple, a couple. I said, a couple is two, huh? two, two people, right? You know, I mean, you must be specific, right? So he said, yes. So I thought I had a great story, you know. I, I think I ran back to the phone. Uh-huh. But then my boss said, no time really, come back. Oh. So everything, they were only, they were concerned with the results. The results got in and that was it. I couldn't get into the papers. So I think that was my most memorable election. Did they get the papers eventually? As in not the next day, but the day after? No, no, it didn't get, you know, things oh. were moving so fast. I, it got into the papers, I think several years later. Oh, When okay. I had to write a piece on Francis Xiao mm-hmm. and I shoehorned this, this parts in some years later. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. So how do you, I mean, this is a curiosity, but how do, would you, is it like, um, and I guess this is coming from, because I've reported for you before, would this tidbit be like in a notebook you have somewhere that you have to go and find to remember what yes, happened yes, that yes. night? Yes, of course. You know, actually I was just looking for a chance to try and get it and use it, but it must be a relevant topic, right? Re- the relevant thing, you can't just shoehorn it into anything. Yeah. So there was a relevant topic. You see, I, I think a couple of years later, I went to cover Francis Xiao in the okay. US. Yeah, I think it was, he was giving some kind of talk, or the Prime Minister was giving a talk in the US, and I was covering him. And he was there, you mm-hmm. know, and I spoke to him. So it seemed like something I can put together, more column, it's a column, you know, not a news report, yeah. on how this man, you know, had played such a big figure in the yeah. election, you know, so I could reprise some of those things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was a column, and of all places, it appeared in the live section. You <laughs> yeah. described the 1988 experience, and just from that one year itself, I'm guessing, and I'm wondering in general, what makes the experience of reporting an election exciting? What makes it exciting? Mm. Well, I think it's the the atmosphere. You know, politics in Singapore is quite dull. Huh? Mm-hmm. Um, when I started in the 80s and 90s, it was a lot more exciting. I mean, there were so many new political changes, which some people were against, you know. You have, you, besides the, the, the Marxist conspiracy, the use of ISA, you know, uh, the pushback against uh, uh, foreign newspapers, you know, right of reply, elected president, GRC, town councils. There's so many things that came into, into being in that period, you know. Uh, so the election... In every election, there is a sense of uncertainty. You know, I don't think anyone thought the PP is going to be thrown out. Lah, huh? But the idea of looking at how well or how badly they did was still pretty shiok. Lah. <laughs> uh, so, and also during that nine days, it's a very quick nine days, you can mm-hmm. expect plenty of things to happen which you do not expect. So plenty of, of curveballs, no poison pen letters, lawsuits, accusations and counter-accusations. So, you know, for Singapore, this is like a once-in-four-year drama. So <laughs> that's why it's so exciting to cover. I'm also thinking about because of your... I mean, I hate to describe this long tenure, but like, I'm thinking about the transitions from 1G or the first generation leaders to 2G to 3G about the governments of the three prime ministers, so the LKY, Go Chok Tong, and now um, Prime Minister Lee Sien Long. Um, 
with the growth of the internet and social media, which has kind of paralleled this transition, what's your experience of election reporting? How has it changed over time, over these kind of like three generations, so to speak? Okay, first of all, let me tell you, I'm not Lee Kuan Yew's generation. Huh? <laughs> and I'm also not Go Chok Tong's generation. Uh, I think the, the term internet election, you say election reporting, internet election, online elections, you know, they were too quickly applied. Uh, you know, especially in uh, 2011 and 2001, even the last time, 2015. Um, you know, not that many people had come online. And uh, yet, you know, people were still calling it the internet election and how this will change all the parameters. Uh, but then talk on ether, at least at that point in time, it doesn't necessarily translate to thoughts on the ground. It doesn't translate into action, into votes, you know. Um, but I think the PAP's online machinery really improved quite a bit after 2011. I suppose that was 2011. GE was itself a bit of a shock yeah. to the PAP. So basically, its online mach machinery really was cranked up. And uh, no, they were making their voices felt on you know, the, the PAP side. They were almost as loud. Huh? Um, but now, the coming GE, I think it's, you can call it an internet election by default. Huh? Yeah. Because the campaigning rules really make the internet really the, the main medium of our campaigning. So we can call it that. Uh, whether or not, you know, the political parties know how to use it, use all the social media tools, you know, try and uh, gain access to as many groups as possible. That's something else. Yeah. Uh, now, where reporting is concerned, I want to make this point, you know, it doesn't matter what is the medium in which you write. Or we should broadcast a report. It's the same same skill. You 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 listen to what has been said. You examine it and you ask questions. Yeah. yeah? Now, internet reporting actually makes it a lot harder because internet reporting is no guarantee of speed, and it's no guarantee of honesty or even transparency because it's too hard to gauge. You know, so you think about responding to an email. Do you even want to respond? And mm -hmm. if you do respond, tell me how would you respond? This is not as good as, you know, asking questions face-to-face -face yeah. where you can actually assess uh, uh, what people have said. So ironically, techn technology can actually hide a lot more things, you know, and not necessarily raise levels of transparency. Whereas the old days of running around and cornering people in bathrooms and all that are probably <laughs> more effective for journalism. Mm -hmm. And in talking about journalism, there is the... I guess in Singapore, the persistent skepticism that political odds are always necessarily stacked against the opposition parties in Singapore and that in this, to this extent, the mainstream media is complicit in creating this uneven um, playing field. So I guess from your experience, how accurate is that assessment and to what extent has that um, changed since you started as a reporter? Hmm. Well, I'm not sure about the word complicit. Huh? Uh, I will say that that, you know, we used to call the period close to election, like now, the silly season. You know, we say the silly season is upon us, you know. And this is the point when you report and you write so carefully, you know, because the government can see agendas and motives in anything that wasn't absolutely complimentary. Mm -hmm. So it's a very, very, what we call it, we're walking on eggshells, so to speak. Yeah. So if you've read Chow Yip Singh's book, OB Markers, you'd have known, you know, about the times when editors get hauled up, you know, after elections, it's, it's some kind of post-mortem about whether we've been helpful. Yeah? I think those people who have nothing good to say about the mainstream media should go and read it. 
and ask themselves how they would respond differently if they were in the editor's shoes. Uh, um, now I think generally on all sides, there's some awareness that the mainstream media can no longer ignore players, other players, if it wants to be a credible medium. Yeah? Mm -hmm. um, I think the government realizes it too. I mean, do you really want to concede alternative views to alternative media alone? Mm -hmm. Then if that is the case, you really, really risk polarizing the population. You know, so there'll be this bifurcation uh, of space. You know? The online space is a one kind of space and offline space is another kind of space. That can't be how Singapore lives. Mm -hmm. And I guess that brings us to the current moment, which is focusing on the upcoming general elections. Of course, only the Prime Minister knows the date, but um, you concluded in a May 28th piece, and I quote, I know that every general election has been categorized as a watershed or landmark GE, but I think these labels will definitely fit the coming one. It's time for a new Singapore, not just more of the same, end quote. So I was wondering whether you could speak to that in terms of what you think would be significantly different this time around for it to be categorized as you know, a watershed or landmark GE. Okay. I must uh, qualify though that uh, these terms uh, are terms that I, I use, yeah. what I think this GE should be about. It all depends on whether or not the, the key players pitch it the same way. You know, My watershed and my landmark is of a certain kind, a certain baseline. But, you know, I don't know what is other people's, right? Uh, I mean, to me, it's obvious that the PAP is going for a line that says, pick the government for the long term uh, because, you know, we have plans now, you know, you, you can see what we're trying to do, you know, the post-COVID-19 the, the post period, uh, the new normal, getting the economy starting. So remember that. In fact, Heng Swicket was quite blunt about it. He, he said that, you know, it's not the time for accounting. Of course, you can look at mistakes, but it's to look ahead. So clearly, you know, the pitch is about uh, looking at what the PAP can do for you from here. Huh? Uh, to me, that seems pretty passe, you know. But most of the time, every GE, we know that we have a great, strong uh, government, a lot of technocrats who can handle all these, the wheels, the big wheels, and let the country move. But um, I don't, to me, for me, I want to see more. Not a question of just, you know, uh, smart ideas to get the economy going, but some radical ones because the COVID-19, as they themselves say, you know, have thrown up some things, yeah? Uh, I want to point out, like, three. Huh? I mean, reliance on cheap foreign labour is one. Uh, it seems to be the cause of so many social ills, you know, whether it's depressed wages of locals, yeah? and you know, stagnant productivity levels. You know, we never speak much about productivity these days, you know? but it was a very important, important component of an earlier economic report. Oh, secondly, like, whether our poor or even lower middle class have enough cash on hand for emergencies. It was terribly surprising to me that 450,000 people asked for the temporary relief grant of 500 bucks. You know? So, wow, I'm just thinking to myself, you need $500 so quickly you know, so many people. So do we have to rethink our redistribution policies or should we just rely on the old, you know, transfers, investments in social infrastructure? You know, do, do we need to do more? Yeah. There's a third thing I want to raise. And I have some self-interest in this. Like, uh, you know, remember a couple of months back or last year, there was a fuss we made about giving land for a retirement village or selling land for a retirement village and how this could pave the way for future you know, uh, uh, living for the old. 
Well, you know, just a few weeks ago, you know, they turned out the bids were all too low, so the, the plan was axed. So what now? You know, I, I want to see something like that too. You know, do we need to rethink the living arrangements of people who are going to get old, have fewer or no children to support? So, you know, so it's a bit, to me, it's a little bit strange like, that we are thinking so much about the living conditions of home workers when actually one big problem could be, you know, the living arrangements for the elderly. Mm -hmm. And the elderly are people you can't sort of tell them to go home. Eh? Yeah. This is home, yeah. So uh, will the political parties address such big problems? I don't know. You know or, or am I just going to hear about, we must go digital, transform, you know, <laughs> or we should have a checking mechanism. You know, to me, these are, these, are, these are old phrases. They might still be relevant, but this time requires more than just old phrases. <laughs> and in talking about old phrases, I mean, my next question is, based on what you kind of lined up in terms of the PAP, pitching the voters to pick a government for the long term, right? The ruling party appears to be focused on securing a strong mandate, but you don't seem to quite fancy the term mandate. So what about that term or phrases is problematic for you? Well, um, again, you know, it's about uh, who is talking about the mandate and you know, what sort of magnitude of the mandate they think is okay. You know, it, I mean, I think it's quite, uh, I don't think there's any need to use the term at all, you know, and, uh, and I don't think you can actually be accurately use the term too, you know, maybe in a general sense, yes. So you say the PAP has a big mandate in 2015. I say, yeah, okay, because you compare it to 2011. So there's a basis of comparison. So let's say if the votes remain that way or go up or go down, you know, uh, uh, if it goes down, you know, is anyone in power going to say it's a smaller mandate? Or will they <laughs> then start talking about, oh, you know, actually it's quite good, you know, because at this time we expect this, we expect that, you know. So the conditions and the caveats will come in. So it's really who has the biggest voice which will determine whether there is a mandate or not. Mm -hmm. uh, then there's a the case about whether you should look at votes, whether you should look at seats, you know. I mean, you can say the PAP has the strongest mandate for all time, just going by the number of seats it has. Yeah. You know? So it's the first pass of post system, we live with it. So they can say strongest mandate and it, uh, because, you know, they have all seats. Never mind if the margin for a seat is just 1%. Mm. Uh, the other thing about mandate is, you know, there's the, what I call a GRC camouflage effect, uh, where you don't know how individuals did. Uh, and that's something which bothers me because, you know, from what I have, has, uh, you know, have been reported time and again, it seems that people do know. I mean, some people in power do know or even the candidates themselves know how their different districts voted for them. Mm -hmm. So you could tell in a GRC slate who's a stronger player, who's not so strong, who actually pulled down everything. But this has never been made public. And I frankly don't see why, you know, shouldn't voters know so that we can also see, you know, how each other, you know, uh, reacted. So uh, I, I think it's good to know. I think there's no reason to keep such numbers secret. Not at all. Not from the people who voted. You know? yeah. um, so I was also, so this camouflage effect, you know, is, is to me a little disturbing. Then I was also disappointed because the, the, the electoral boundaries review committee, you know, only increased the number of single seats from 13 to 14. That's one. Yeah. You, know, you know, the PM, when he said he would ask them to raise seats, 
uh, no, I took it as not just buy one, <laughs> but instead it went up by one. Yeah. And this was the case in the last GE as well. It was also raised by one. Uh, then of course I was hoping this is a, it's, it's just it's hopeless hope lah, that uh, I thought it could come back to the three member GRCs, right? Uh, instead they're still, you know, lost. Uh, we don't have it. It's only in the first time, the first first election that we had three members. Mm-hmm. But a three member GRC, so that there's a better connection between the vote and the candidates. I think that's all right, and you can still, uh, you know, manage to put the racial composition. That, you know, you you satisfy that that uh, key criteria that there must be racial representation. And I think many Singaporeans also share your sentiment that the pandemic, the COVID-19 outbreak has, was supposed to be the big debut of the fourth generation leaders. But uh, with the current virus outbreak in the foreign worker dormitories, which is something you pointed out just now, seems to have scuttled that approach. So how do you think the ruling party will approach the coming election? Mm. Well, I think the message is already being sent out. Yeah, that the outbreak is sort of inevitable, right? You live it in close quarters, it will happen. Uh, so if you've listened it to what you know, like uh, Senior Minister Kyo Chihian said yesterday, you know, he, he or it makes it clear the living conditions are already an improvement from the past. Yeah. So the new buildings will be an even further improvement. Actually, my sympathies are with the government in this case. Because if you have foreign labor, you must be able to house them, you know, and you must house them properly. On this point, I think the government has probably been more transparent and painstaking you know, than other countries whom, which I will not name. Okay? So the question isn't quite about the, the dormitories themselves, but a more basic one, you know, which is how many foreign workers do we really need? You know? mm-hmm. I think where the elections are concerned, this, the, the Singaporean citizen will probably be able to make a distinction uh, between... Uh, uh, how the, the outbreak has affected the foreign workers and affected them. Uh, so, which is actually what uh, the government is trying to make clear when it decides that there should be community transmission and foreign worker dormitory transmission. Mm-hmm. So whether or not uh, the Singaporean will also move over the fence uh, and start looking at the foreign workers' uh, side, uh, that's a big question. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking in terms of like, I, I don't think the opposition parties will be as charitable as your assessment. You know, I feel like <laughs> in my mind, and I'm thinking about the online campaigns, the yeah. main things that will hit the government again would be we have the highest per capita and the outbreak. Mm. It's still 400 a day. Um, I don't know if they'll be as charitable as you, your assessment in that sense, you know? Okay. Okay. I, uh, okay. Thank you for calling me charitable. I, <laughs> I, usually nobody really calls me charitable, but okay. Uh, I think where that is concerned, it's, it's very easy to say you didn't look after foreign workers well enough, yeah. right? Uh, you didn't put them in proper housing. But, you know, the class notes team, you know, they looked at the living conditions. And the living conditions were actually quite universal. I mean, they, they, they met universal standards. I mean, to us, we may say that, wow, such small space. But hello, this is a space that's set up internationally too. 
So we're giving them a lot of space and all that. And, and I think that's good. Uh, so did the government, you know, took his eye, took his eye off the ball, so to speak, on foreign workers. I suppose you can say yes. Um, that, uh, but you know, frankly, the the issue goes much further back. You see, mm-hmm. than just the, the living arrangements. We have it like this here now. How, what did you really want want the government to do? Do you immediately in January start building isolation, uh, 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 no, uh, isolation buildings? You know, to house them quickly, move them away, disperse. You know, could we have done that? I think maybe with Singapore's ingenuity, we could have done that. But you know, do you really think it's a feasible <laughs> method? We can do it like that. Mm-hmm. I'm not. I'm not so sure. You know. In fact, I think it's quite a feat that within a month or so, we managed to house twenty thousand in outside premises. That's quite a feat. Should we have done that earlier? I don't know. So um, I agree in some sense that you know we, we need a calibrated approach uh, to fixing uh, the outbreak. Uh, but I also make the point that um, while being calibrated, you must also be transparent about the reasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, you, you, might, you'll, you should say, for example, I think a lot of people have said it and it will be repeated ad nauseum that, you know, you tell me not to wear masks for health reasons, yeah. no, unless I have health reason. but you should actually tell me that the reason I'm asking you to do this is because we also don't have enough masks. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So people don't like being told what to do. Actually, they like being told what to do, but they would prefer that that explanation that is honest as well mm-hmm. so that they will do. Yeah. You know, I no doubt Singaporeans will do. You, know, you tell them to do something, they will do. But I think the, the electorate has got a more mature. So when you tell them to do something, don't play around with the why. Yeah. You know, be very upfront about it. Yeah. That. That's yeah. The, the problem I see now, you know, where it comes to telling people to trust us, trust us, trust us over this COVID thing. And then we suddenly feel little things coming here and there that, hey, hello, actually, not quite like this, not quite like that. Mm-hmm. And I just think that if the government wants to say, I don't know, that's actually better. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I don't know if it's used to that, but I completely agree with what you just said. I think the mask example is a very nice example of that, um, that, that, that explanation that you had in terms of wanting more information from government, you right. know, in terms of right. why something is done, which I think is right. going to be very much appreciated. And right. I guess this links to the final question, which is there's been a series of national broadcasts, right, including the first by the Prime Minister. Um, you know, substantively, what do you make of these broadcasts and how... To what extent and how do they relate to the um, coming election? Well, frankly, I'm a little bit flamoxed. I mean, I've watched three. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, they're not really anything new uh, or announcements. They are rallying. Even so, it doesn't quite cross into election rallying, you know. <laughs> it's more like a, you know, we must stay united kind of rallying. Yeah. Yeah? So, um, so it's about assurance, I guess, you know that uh, we have the wherewithal, you know, also a lot of uh, backpacking, you know, we are good, you're good, we're all good, you know. <laughs> uh, so, people see it's a prelude to the coming election and I do too. And in fact, you know, I think basically at the end of it all, you know, some parts of it will be pulled together as some kind of manifesto that will be presented to the people. Yeah. And it will be like, do you like this? We already told you this. Is this what you want? If you, this is what you want, vote for us. Mm-hmm. Quite simple. Yeah. <laughs>
And that's it for our episode today. To read more about the class notes on the general election, visit ourclassnotes.com. That's ourclassnotes.com. You can also subscribe to the socialservice.sg newsletter and the podcast at socialservice.sg or tinyletter.com slash socialservice.sg. If you'd like to share other initiatives or issues, email me at sppkjy at nus.edu.sg. Thank you very much and see you next time.